Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Post a hilarious cat video and turn your baseball cap backwards. It's time for another flat chat. And the latest issue of GP Racing Magazine looks ahead to the British Grand Prix. Features all three flag-carrying British drivers. Uh, We joined Lando Norris in Monaco to discuss his plans for world domination through his merch, gaming and media business. Lewis Hamilton spilled the beans about his role in the forthcoming F1 blockbuster. I wonder if he'll have a walk-on part. And George Russell talked us through the Silverstone moments that made him what he is. And stop the press. Speaking of flag waving, Aston Martin owner Lawrence Stroll thinks he should be knighted for his services to British industry. Uh, joining me to discuss these and other matters of moment in the Formula One world are newly minted homeowner Matt Hugh. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, uh, I'm. Well, I don't know if, if in millennial speak, uh, I'm probably now the opposite of minted, having uh, having showed up for a deposit. But yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks. you're you're ruining all those sourdough and avocado smashings, aren't you? Absolutely. I can't even. I can't even look at a, a cheap Savoy cabbage because it just reminds me of uh, of Liz Truss and why I'm having to pay so much interest <laughs> on my damn mortgage. <laughs> Well, speaking of people who aren't quasi quartan competent, it's Mark Gallagher. <laughs> yeah, very, very good to be here, um, uh, and very amusing to hear about uh, Lawrence Stroll's ambitions to be to be knighted. Uh, he clearly should have done the, the very simple thing of becoming a special advisor to Boris Johnson. <laughs> he's uh, he's he's missed that boat. I mean, all he had to do was a, a couple of years internship in Downing Street, and never you don't have to actually create a manufacturing business and employ loads of people. Just turn up, look pretty, and uh, work for Boris for six months. Ladies and gentlemen, bit of politics. Bit of politics up front. <laughs> bit of politics up front. Yeah. <laughs> All those people who've been nagging us to get this podcast up because it's now a week late and we're going, they've gone off on one again. I'm not listening to this rubbish anymore. Anyway, so at the risk of delving into politics once again, um, you know, in the early stages of the pandemic, while most people were trapped at home, 
kept themselves entertained by binge watching the likes of Tiger King. I still haven't watched it yet. Obviously, there were exceptions. Uh, the British government partying until they puked. Vladimir Putin sitting in his bunker with his trousers round his ankles, plotting the invasion of Ukraine, and so on. Uh, Lando Norris decided to start a business. Now, to some people, Twitch is what you do when you start to nod off after a heavy lunch. Perhaps uh, Payola was involved. Perhaps it was the Pirelli lunch last Friday. Uh, but Twitch is a streaming platform for gamers, and that's where Lando found his audience in lockdown, and the idea germinated from there. The Quadrant Company now has a thriving YouTube feed, which I, I, I looked at in preparation for interviewing Lando, and it, it's got people on it doing wacky, crazy things that millennials do nowadays. Uh he regularly sells out what I'm informed are merch drops. Merch drops. I've got no idea what a merch drop is. Perhaps Matt Q can enlighten me later. He's got pro esport teams in Call of Duty and Halo. Now, having murked a few noobs in my time, I know what they're all about. <laughs> uh, and uh, would you believe it? A Red Bull style athlete sponsorship program is also uh, on the cards. So. Um, Mark, as as a you know our, our resident business expert, what did you think? He's quite quite young to be uh, doing all this entrepreneurship. Well, he is young, but he is also a chip off the old block. His uh, you know his father was is is a super successful entrepreneur, and I think you know a comment I would make generally from drivers I've worked with over the over the years is that those that come from an entrepreneurial family you know they've had a father who's been a very successful business person they they, they tend to have it in them and uh they want to emulate their father and and of course there's the other benefit which is that the father can give them advice and perhaps introduce them to their business network and tell them you know where they where they could go wrong and that's all extremely helpful and I th i'm a, a great believer that you know there's a reason why you get these family dynasties in businesses because um you know if parents have had a particularly good run it gives their children the confidence to to try the same and all and also it helps when there's enough money behind you that means that you can you can have the odd uh, issue arise you know if you've got a bit of a slight cash flow problem um and i think you know lando obviously himself is privately independently wealthy but again with the the family's background that gives him confidence uh, when they see a problem coming over the horizon, they know how to deal with it. And of course, he's perfectly placed to embark on a business like this, being a, a gamer himself. And although I'm I'm not a regular Twitch user, I, um, I do have an account uh, because my son and uh, actually my daughter, I think as well, but certainly my son, was using it a long time ago, probably well well over a decade ago, and introduced me to the power of it. And actually, uh, the reason I opened an account was because I was writing a column for the magazine, and I, I wanted to talk about the growth of esports and have a look at what was happening in that space. And uh, I mean, I found it absolutely fascinating, and then also very quickly realised I needed to leave Twitch and never use it again because I'm because my very presence as a 60 something uh uh you know guy uh, probably would have raised eyebrows so i uh, decided probably best to retire and uh and never use it again <laughs> unless someone specifically asks me so uh anyway it was good to see uh what was going on and I, you know i do follow the sort of media coverage around that that sort of space as they call it and 
it's a completely natural thing for Lando to have gotten involved in. And actually, in some ways, it surprises me that more athletes and sports stars don't get into the the esports space and invest more heavily in it. Because I think, you know, for me, I, I, I certainly know that whilst there are people who love it and others who wonder what the hell it's all about, frankly, there are enough people who love it for you to make a great business out of it. Yes, I think the author of the piece does point out that esports are curiously polarizing and uh, you either you're either utterly embedded in it or you kind of um wouldn't defecate on if, if it was on fire and uh, I, I suppose it depends on whether you participate in it uh, i regularly look at um youtube streams of zwift races so i can do course recce's and e- even watch back some races that i've been in but um Back in the day when one went to arcades and shoveled 50p's and pound coins into a machine, there were always little kids that would hang around and look over your shoulder while you were playing and occasionally dis- dispense completely useless tips. Uh, and, um, you know, Twi- Twitch enables you to do that while watching people getting paid an awful lot of money and definitely don't need a tip from you. Older people will complain about it and say, oh, well, you know, our son or our daughter goes and spends hours on end in their in their bedroom on their own and uh, you know i'm really worried about are they spending enough time you know they should get out and meet more people and of course the reality is it's a fantastic way to build a network of friends and people and get into contact and I, and, and again looking at my own uh, son and daughter both of them now have a network i know in my daughter's case she has an international network of friends who she has then subsequently met up with you know because they've met online and um They've had that. It's a it's a dual experience, isn't it? So there's the experience of gaming. There's the experience of watching other people uh, do it extremely well. But also there's this fantastic communications platform where it's literally an incredibly active, vibrant social media platform. By the way, with all the good and bad that can come with that, so it's not all perfect by a, by any stretch of the imagination. But it is a it's a great way for connecting people and. Um, I think there's so much power uh, in that. And, you know, when I was reading the the article, I was thinking about this idea of, you know, there are people who love it and there are people who can't stand it. I mean, I wonder if the people who can't stand it are a very definite older demographic uh, in terms of our sports fans because they don't like it because they don't really understand it. They're not really into it um, because of their demographic. I wonder if there are, um, you know, people in that in the middle of that, yeah, much younger. I mean, you, you mentioned sort of millennial, you know, also, you know, Gen A, as they call it, you know, the, the next generation coming through as well, um, who themselves, you know, I can't imagine they're all 100% unified behind using these platforms, but it strikes me there's a reason why it's so popular. You only have to look at the amount of money that goes into the gaming, computer gaming, entertainment sector, it's vast. I mean, it is far, far, far bigger than, you know, Hollywood. You think of the amount of time that, um, time and effort and money that's spent by mainstream media covering things like the Academy Awards and the Oscars and every movie that comes out gets loads of coverage quite often. You know, Harrison Ford at the moment, you know, is on, on TV uh, last night again, talking about the you know his next his final Indiana Jones uh, installment. Hollywood is tiny by comparison to the you know esports and computer gaming industry. So actually, you know, when you see Lando working in that space, you think, well, 
you know, the naysayers, frankly, are irrelevant because it's a, it's a huge industry. And uh, the fact that he's making inroads into that whilst he's a current F1 driver is also extremely clever because he's building momentum while he's still in the hot seat, literally. And, you know, let's face it, he's got a very long uh, and I, I suspect extremely successful career ahead of him in Formula One. He needs to you know, perhaps change teams fairly soon, which I think will happen, um, certainly in the next era of F1 as we move towards the 2026 regulations. And, and, you know, he will have a long and successful and winning career in F1. And that the fact that he is then in parallel building this business alongside it is very powerful. You know, most most sports people wait until their professional sports career finishes before they start embarking on on that you know other things or perhaps they'd started at the tail end of their career lando has front loaded his career with uh, with doing this and it's i think it's a very smart move again i go back to the point i made which is you know his his parental guidance in terms of entrepreneurship will be don't wait you know do it now it's not like he's having to run the business 10 hours a day himself um he's got good people in to do that but he's he's a, an extremely important ambassador and face of the business and as i again as i know from working with other drivers what very often you notice is that when they launch a business you know they're not working in it they're working on it so they're not working in the business monday to friday they're just working on it they're attending key meetings or uh, perhaps using their network and what can be more powerful for a business like Lando's where perhaps, you know, he's working on the company is working on a deal and they're able to say to whoever it is they're trying to do the deal with, well, of course, you know, you know, Lando would like to meet you or, you know, let's have dinner in London or would you like to come to a Grand Prix? And by the way, we've managed to arrange 10 minutes in the garage with Lando during qualifying. And, you know, that's incredibly appealing to other business people because they feel, wow, this is someone worth, you know, really exciting to do business with current Formula One drivers. So I think it's every way you look at it, um, the whole quadrant uh, strategy really for Lando, that that entrepreneurship he's throwing, showing through that business is, uh, is very clever and likely to be extremely successful as a result. Now, Matt, we, we should emphasize that Lando is still sort of fully fully focused is a, is a strange term to use after we've talked about him being in business but he's still very focused on his formula 1 career and uh, in effect his involvement in quadrant is directing and working with the people he's sort of set with it what 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 did you think about the his choice of company veloce that's basically started in the gaming space and now has an extreme e-team and is involved in all sorts of stuff beyond the gaming industry yeah well i'm probably one of the worst millennials you could have got for this podcast because uh, i not not much of a uh, uh don't do games don't eat smashed avocados no i spent i spent a house i spent lockdown watching you know live streaming a rather different type of online content to pass the time but look, <laughs> never mind <laughs> I, I believe you asked me about the location of one of them it was shot in hull i think <laughs> I don't think my mum listens to this podcast. Anyway, <laughs> before I started work on um, in Formula One, I did I did cover the inaugural season of um, Extreme. So watching sort of that that Veloce team where you've got you know like the you know Julian Bailey family and then 
and then um, obviously the relationship with Codron and they were run, I think, at least to start with, between like a blend of ART Grand Prix and, and a rallycross team. And then obviously you've got Norris, who at various races will get guest passes for his Quadrant power. So like you see Max Futrell and stuff shooting around. So it's quite a like, it's quite a, you know, coming together of several different worlds. It's really impressive, you know, that they're, uh, they've uh, you know got got podiums and and I think they have they they won they actually won an extreme e round this this season or at the tail end of last season so you know that is an esports team that has come to life and you know that's that's interesting where you see Verstappen sort of racing a virtual Le Mans or, or with what Norris is doing and actually you know what a shot in the arm it is for R Factor Two or Codemasters who have uh, you know or EA Sports making the games that there there is that sort of tangible link you know. Uh, all right, you might, you know, footballers do sort of tend to play FIFA a lot in their spare time, but I suppose racing drivers, that's a lot more, it feels like it can be a lot more relatable as in, you know, pressing A doesn't actually teach you how to, to pass a football on the next box, but, you know, it's turning the wheel left and right and nailing your gear shift sort of, sort of does, so it does feel a bit more transferable. What I find interesting, though, is that um, I do watch a fair bit of YouTube and other sort of... Um, Oh, it's an awful word, but content or, you know, content mm, yes. providers and stuff. I, I stumbled over using the word content with, with Lando because uh, cool. most people who use the word content, it, it sounds like something you might find in a bucket rather than something that we sweat over to make marvellous. I should have picked the wrong word. I should have said uh, between between um, the online gaming and, and real world skills, there's lots of nice synergies. That's that's the word I should have used to keep up. Yeah, lovely. Um, anyway, what I, was, what I was saying is content providers I watch is they seem to, they're all going in like the opposite direction of, of Lando Norris where they started on YouTube or whatever and now they've built up an audience and that's generated some revenue. So now they're sort of um, investing in or creating their own businesses that will sustain or, or survive past the, you know, when the next algorithm changes and suddenly their 30 minute video formats are, you know, put at the bottom of the page and they lose all their ad, ad business. They're, they're looking at things to sort of, you know, basically support their family afterwards. So launching car auction websites or whatever. So it's interesting that Norris is going the other way and his, his main income is, uh, is, is obviously his McLaren salary and then sort of sustaining his YouTube channel, live streaming Twitch. And also I think what that says about, you know, it, okay, the popularity peaked during COVID, but they're showing it's not a fad that, you know, we're, we're you know, 12 months, 18 months the other side and it's still getting a big audience. You're still getting, you know, bigger name drivers from GT racing and occasionally F1 talents turning up so that it is sort of, um, yeah, for all, all the naysayers, it's a completely legitimate way and, it's, and as as... You know, the merch proves or whatever, it can be quite a money spinner. Oh, for the worst thing, the worst threat to face in your professional life, to be a (laughs) a change in the algorithm. Quite. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But actually, Hollywood is getting its teeth into F1 again. Uh, A couple of podcasts ago, we tackled the issue of the forthcoming Brad Pitt blockbuster uh, via a long detour into the worst James Bond film ever. Uh, Since then, we've seen Brad on track during practice at some Grand Prix, doing some filming in an F3 car, I think. Uh, We've learned from Lewis Hamilton about his involvement in the production. Uh, Lewis is also the subject of a biographical documentary. Uh, I hope that Lewis is as on top of things as Nicky Lauda was uh, with his consulting role with Rush, because apparently in the in a very early draft of Rush, it has uh, Nicky Lauda getting into his Ferrari and turning the key to make the engine switch on. And apparently Lauda read that bit in the script. And said, what? This is absolute nonsense. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, we, just this week, we've learned that a consortium including Ryan Reynolds, Michael B. Jordan and Rob McElhenney are investing $200 million into the Alpine team. Uh, Obviously, the sort of people who comment below the fold on Autosport news stories think this is a precursor to Renault cashing out again. But there's more to the story than that. Now, um, Mark, you've talked a fair bit about the increasing valuation of F1 teams. What did you make of the claim that this put the value of the team as $900 million? We're into Dr. Evil territory here, aren't we? $900 million. So this is all quite amusing because I I tweeted about this yesterday. And this morning I had a a message from Mika Hakkinen's office to tell me that my tweet is on the front page of a Finnish sports newspaper. (laughs) Because, because to finish first, first to finish, finish. exactly because because off the back of the the Alpine um, announcement, I gosh, I can't believe I've I've gotten into the habit now saying Alpine. I said Alpine for fifty nine years, and then was finally convinced to to change. Anyway, Alpine F one teams announcement. Um, there was this whole discussion then online about is a team really worth nine hundred million dollars? Well. It clearly is because that's what they paid for it. I mean, literally, it's it's in the mathematics. You know, if you pay two hundred million dollars, uh, two hundred million euros for twenty four percent, you know, you work the maths forward. It's a nine hundred million uh, uh, dollar valuation on the team. Call it a billion. I mean, why not call it a billion? Because you know, what's a hundred million when you've already got nine hundred million on the table? So, uh, you know, billion dollar Formula One franchises. If Alpine is worth nine hundred million, what does that make? Red Bull Racing worth? What's that make Mercedes F1 team worth? What's that make uh, teams with arguably a longer heritage in terms of their brand name? I'm thinking particularly of McLaren, you know, think think of Atlando's team. Zach Brown, uh, and I'll put my hand up here and say I was one of the people who rather dismissed this comment. You know, Zach Brown, uh, not too many years ago, said, you know, Formula One team's worth half a billion dollars. And people were like, nah, you know, it's not. And and we kind of thought the proof of that was in the Williams deal. So the Williams team was sold in September 2020 for rather less than $200 million. And that was for the whole shooting match, you know. Um, so here we are three years later, less than three years later, and teams are now worth five times that, that amount. And uh, it's a really significant 
It's a really significant moment because I've been saying for some time that whilst all of us in Europe keep talking about the Netflix effect and saying, you know, how much bigger Formula One is getting in America, we genuinely don't realize just how big Formula One has become in America. And it's not until you're spending a lot of time there that you see it. I am just back from an almost two-week trip to North America, and I spent quite a lot of time in New York, including... I presented at a conference, which was a private equity company. So precisely the kind of organ, you know company that has now been used by uh, Rob, Michael Henney and Michael Jordan and uh, Ryan Reynolds to buy into Alpine. So private equity company, you know, room full of 100, 100 investors. And after I was finished my presentation, I had people coming up to me saying, Formula One's just amazing. I mean, it's... It's this interface of sport and technology, and the companies are experts in aeronautical engineering and aerodynamics and powertrain technology and electronics and data analytics. And so I'm standing there. I've got this these group of high-powered high investors. They're telling me how amazing Formula One is because they've, you know, I've just you know given them a kind of an overview of how the industry works. So you've got a sport which has. You know, we there's so much hyperbole around these things, but I mean, it truly has exploded on the scene in the United States, and Liberty have done a phenomenal job. Um, and the reason, you know, the reason why I got that sort of message from Mika's office this morning was that off the back of the Alpine valuation, I went on on to the New York Stock Exchange and had a look at yesterday's valuation of of Formula One under Liberty. So obviously Formula One is listed on the New York Stock Exchange and um, its shares yesterday were worth a total of $29.26 billion. Uh, when you bear in mind that Liberty bought Formula One off CVC on a valuation of $8.5 billion uh, in 2016, that means that we're somewhere around three to four times uh, the valuation after six years, which, by the way, uh, in case anyone didn't notice, included a three-year global pandemic and uh, assorted wars in Europe, financial crises, and still they've managed to drive this growth. So whilst the product, as in the racing on a Sunday afternoon, can leave a lot to be desired, uh, in, and it depends how you you look at it, because I personally think they're sort of the midfield racing, it's not even the midfield racing, it's, it's the behind Max Verstappen racing, is often of quite a good quality. There's no question that the overall product does look rather predictable, and we seem to be in the middle of the of the Verstappen domination era, which which is a pity because it means all the new fans that have been attracted are being, um, you know, being forced to watch uh, uh, sort of Hamilton, Mercedes-type domination, perhaps even more so, um, with Max and Red Bull. But so the product we can talk about separately, but the business in terms of the bottom line, the growth, the profitability has never been stronger. And this Alpine deal is a really, really good barometer of where we are at. It's a fabulous deal for um, for Alpine, uh, for Renault's you know, chief executive, Lewis, Look at De Mayo. I mean, to to see uh, and Lauren Rossi, of course, CEO of Alpine. You know, to see the, the the fact that they can sell less than a quarter of just the Formula One team, not the engine business in Veery, but just the Formula One team in Enstone for that kind of money is that's that's a really good payday uh, for uh, 
for Renault. And of course, in getting on board a, a portfolio of uh, equity investors, American equity investors and celebrity equity investors with uh, with the, the, the gentleman that we mentioned, that opens up another business network for the team, particularly in the United States. And the very fact that, you know, Ryan Reynolds already has demonstrated, and Rob McElhenney, the two of them have demonstrated great success in what they've done with Wrexham, you know, in football, um, and indeed in other sporting arenas, and with his other brands that he's done. I'm a, I, I consume his aviation gin now and again, and it's I have to say very good product that it is too. Uh, Ryan, if you're, if you're listening to the podcast, you know um, samples always welcome. Um, but, uh, <laughs> other gins are available. Other gins are available, but I but I don't drink them, Ryan. I just drink <laughs> I just drink aviation. <laughs> um, but it, it's it. But you know, so he's here's a guy. He's an entrepreneur. He's a celebrity. He's you know just um, got a formidable network. So that's going to be powerful. And I think that'll help further build the fan base in that team in America. And of course, it's beautiful for Renault because on the very same day that they announced this deal with the Alpine performance brand, you know, they also announced their plans for expansion of the Alpine sports car brand and in its new era as uh, um, an electric vehicle, high performance uh, uh, brand, including expansion in, in the United States. Well, not really expansion, but actually getting it off the ground completely in the United States, which is what they need to do. And again, you can imagine how they can use these connections very powerfully. So it's an extremely good deal, very good news for Endstone. And uh, far from me uh, agreeing with those saying that this is a sign of Renault's exit, I actually think it's the opposite. I think it's uh, a sign of continued faith in the sport. And let's face it, you know, the Mercedes-Benz Formula One team is two-thirds owned by people other than Daimler-Benz, owned by Toto Wolff and Sir Jim Ratcliffe. So actually selling a chunk of the team doesn't mean you're leaving. It actually shows a very clever play. So very interesting. There's an actual night of the realm for you. An actual night of the realm, exactly. (laughs) I say, I think that's that's where I find it really interesting is about the, the wider business so not to move too far away from F1 but obviously last year with Alpine you had the ridiculous driver contract saga and basically they ended up with Alonso going to Aston Martin and then having to announce a limited edition sports car called the Alpine A110 Fernando Alonso edition it's a massive loss about face now hopefully enough time has passed since then so I don't, we don't get sued for this but basically the badges had already been ordered before Otmar and Laurent Rossi screwed up the contract so it's always going to be called the F1 edition but they ended up launching it at something ridiculous like 4am in Japan because they wanted to basically release this sports car before Fernando Alonso was wearing British racing green but got to the tail end of the season you know Alpine have no foothold in the Middle East they couldn't launch in Austin Texas because as Mark says you know they had no presence in the United States so then you realize what a diminutive company the diminutive company is and outside of F1 and I'm not even convinced that people who watch F1 100% of them associate Alpine with you know a team name and also this little French sports car that maybe you see one two on the public roads a year the, the sort of brand recognition it has a tiny foothold so to get people who have turned a little welsh football club and you know bought in ben foster an out of contract premier league player with you know a million youtube subscribers and then the welcome to Wrexham, which has exploded on streaming platforms 
as Mark says, this is not about, you know, Renault necessarily getting cold feet. It's about them sort of relaunching a brand. And I thought there was a really interesting bit in the press release where they say, you know, basically what what is going to happen as a result of, of this brand? And they say... Uh, Alpine hopes this multi-party configuration can boost its media, sponsorship, ticketing, hospitality, commercial rights management, licensing, and merchandising strategies to unlock incremental value creation and new growth levelers. None of that is talking about, oh, you know, exactly, we want to increase our production car efforts. That, that's very, very targeted of where they want to explode, you know, with the, with, and Liberty Media will allow that poetic license so they can have a fly on the wall documentary series and and that can go on disney plus or whatever so you know in previous podcasts when we've talked about well you know drive to survive's poetic license is a bit strong and gore it didn't really stay in the top 10 on not netflix for very long and what comes after the brad pitt film well you know maybe maybe this is it now this is this is since f1's hooked on its popularity fix maybe this is the next administration and if it means alpine can you know they're doing that Renault 5 reimagined electric hot hatch and you know what what complements the sports cars well this is all feeding part part of that and I, I, that's what I find interesting that bigger picture stuff so much of what's new is actually slightly liberated from the past Citroen have brought out the Ami electric car which great if you want to stick one on its roof around the head <laughs> in, at Monaco <laughs> uh, and yeah reimagining the Renault 5 I'm sure that Fiat will be bringing out a new 127 soon uh, what next oh, the the other the other point I'd make is that um, obviously, the involvement of these people in Wrexham has caused tourism to explode in Wrexham. The, the, the sturdy burgers of Wrexham are absolutely astonished at the number of American visitors flocking to see the place, to come to North Wales and, and take in the sights and sounds of, of the, the vibrant community there. So can can we see Enstone as a tourist attraction, perhaps? The local, um, uh, yeah, the, the local pheasant population won't know what's hit it. Well, all I can say is, as someone who lives in Chipping Norton, which is right beside Enstone, <laughs> I really, I really, really hope not, because we've had quite enough of tourists, thanks to Jeremy Clarkson, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know the the, um, the the town is is sort of permanently packed. And then, of course, on the other side of Chipping Norton, we have Harry Metcalf and Jeremy Clarkson on the other side. And if you go out the back, you've got Enstone. And um, I, I mean, I, I should, I, 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 you know, far far from it to. Uh, to be plugging my own cars, but I have an Alpine, uh, which I bought in, you know, when they first came out, because as a, as someone born in the sixties, who got into rallying in the seventies, you know, the original A110 was, was, um, was a, was a car which really appealed to me. And because in Ireland where we have tarmac rallying principally, the uh, Alpine A110s and Lancia Stratos is of the 1970s were just, I mean, it was like a spaceship had landed. They were just so uh, exciting to watch as a young motorsport fan back then. So when the new A110 came out, I immediately sort of decided to go and get one. But the, the drawback is, uh, you know, my wife keeps commenting about the fact that she said, why do, why do people keep flashing us on the road? Well, the answer is that I think everyone who works at Enstow, when they see me driving down the road, they imagine that I'm a colleague. Um, <laughs> and because, because there aren't that many uh, Alpine A110s in the, in the area. So you've got, you, you know, it happened to me yesterday. I was sitting at traffic lights and the car on the other side started flashing lights and waving to me. And I, 
they were probably trying to figure out, you know, which department I worked in, you know, they had never actually met me before. So the answer is no. So I, I might actually put a window sticker saying I don't work for Alpine F1. <laughs> so. I, I had a similar but different thing uh, when I owned a Skoda Octavia VRS in that uh, people thought I was Cop, yeah, yeah. People thought you were very good. <laughs> Yeah, people give give you the squint eye, going, "What's is 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 that blue lights behind his grill?" All that sort of thing. So, yes, yes, it is quite funny. The uh, the the only trouble was I I bought it in red, which means if if the real police are playing the snooker game, you're more likely to uh, be pulled over. But yeah, not as 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 a man who values their driving license, unlike some people present, um, I take care not to exceed the speed limit. Um, go, going back to something that, uh, that Matt was talking about, you know that that from that press release, the um, that sort of the way in which Alpine they could have just said this will benefit our commercial operations, but instead of that, they li- literally list every area that it could benefit. It could benefit their fan base, can benefit their ticket sales, can ben- benefit you know every aspect of of their operation and. I think that's genuine, you know. So I really think that across the board, and that they couldn't wish to have a better partner to enable them to do that. And you know, you've got. Um, I mean, you can just imagine the phone call going in from Ryan Reynolds to Will Ferrell saying, "Listen, Will, you know, we need you to come to a couple of Grand Prix next year, and you know, we we're thinking of doing an Alpine F1 podcast. I'm going to host, you know, six episodes, and could you come on and we'll you know have a you know shoot the breeze about F1." There's a huge amount of power to that, and um, in in this, you'd have to say all important American market because you know we all know not just America, California is Ferrari's biggest market. For Alpine, you know the the chance to grab a slice of that market, and again, that's the other thing that I was really struck by when I was in uh, in North America for those two weeks and just kind of meeting business people and spending spending a bit of quality time there, I came away thinking there is just so much money in that market and there is so much money around the, you know, the wealthy, the wealthy middle, the middle class. You know, mid, so I'm not talking about the super rich. I mean, the super rich are just off the scale in the United States, but the wealthy middle is, uh, is extraordinary. And, um, you know, you go into a Cadillac dealership, or you go into a. I went into a Lamborghini dealership in New York. There was an event that I was speaking at there, and I was chatting to 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 the some of the dealer principals, and they were they were sort of bemoaning the fact that they just can't get enough cars. You know, like I said, we we sell everything we get. We just get orders. You know, and in some cases, years in advance. So there's there's just huge wealth in that market. And so it's a very powerful move um, that's been made. And uh, I think for the other nine teams, you know, for, for people like Gene Haas, who, you know, have been through a pretty shaky period, it must be quite rewarding to now see that there is not just light at the end of the tunnel, there's a massive searchlight. Um, and um, it's, it's going to be, a, it's going to direct them towards some very interesting deals. I think this, It'll be interesting to see if this triggers a string of deals because the private equity space, you know, and for those of you listeners who maybe don't know about private equity companies, private equity companies tend to invest in businesses for uh, for for one principal reason, that is to make money. So they're you know, it's about profit, it's about growth, it's about 
ultimately being able to flip the business on in five or six or seven years to another entity. It might be another private equity company or it might be a private individual. So there is a bubble at the moment and there's a real sense that this deal could, this will open, this will raise eyebrows. You know, people in financial markets will say, so hang on a second, is Formula One now a private equity space? Can we move into that? Who else is available? Of course, McLaren did a deal McLaren Racing did a deal for the Formula One team with private equity um, sort of a year and a half ago, whatever, two years ago. And um, so I think this could this could spur on um, a further series, and that will be very interesting to watch. The danger, of course, will be any sense that there is uh, any sense that there is a bubble. Um, and if if there is a bubble, um, you know that's going to be problematic because it means that uh, ultimately it's going to burst and I've, I mean I've alluded to this in a in a recent in a recent column for the magazine you know that that is that's a danger with what everything that's happening uh, you know but I think the bubble can continue for a while it's a question that my big question will be where will we be in 2030 because once we've got into the new era with six car manufacturers involved in 2026 at what point well, we start to come down the other side. At which point do you see a manufacturer decide, actually, we're never going to win at this, so we're going to pull out. Um, but uh, again, this is why the Alpine strategy is so interesting because they, I mean, they're not a winning team. Well, like, of course, they have won a race uh, recently but uh, in Hungary. But, you know, Alpine is a middling team. Um, but Alpine see that even as a middling team, there is an attractiveness to being in Formula One because of its marketing power. And now these investors have seen that there's an attractiveness to Formula One because actually being fourth or fifth in the championship is is far from being a disgrace. It's actually, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a pretty good player. So really interesting from every perspective. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Mark. And just to, just to add to sort of uh, one, one of the two of his points, it's like it's the, it's the nature of the investors. If this was... You know, Serge and Ratcliffe going. Oh, I'm going to break away from Mercedes and buy, you know, a, a controlling stake in another team. Well, he's just, you know, launched as a massive loss leader. His Ineos Grenadier, like the the money, it does matter, but he he can afford to lose that. This is not a PIF. It's not a state back shake. It's not a Lawrence Stroll vanity project. This is, you know, in football terms, the Premier League, Fenway Sports Group, who are a co-investor, are notoriously conservative up against Man City, and that's you know why. Jurgen Klopp gets so much praise because of what he does with limited resource. They are calculated with other people's money. They're conservative in a sense with a small C. So the fact that you know someone on their board has done the forecast, the calculations, and committed this money, other people's money, as Mark says, it suggests that they believe it's more than more than a bubble. And so you know when Mike, uh, sorry, when uh, Mark says about twenty thirty, well, I was having a conversation with them um, with a colleague yesterday about you know well. What you know? What what about Audi's place? They're you know hedging their bets on twenty twenty six. The understanding is their engine programs a few months behind. So then it's twenty twenty seven before they're reliable, and then after that they're competitive. By which time, you know, when you are let's say Alpine or Aston Martin, and you're coming sixth, and then you have that natural cycle of manufacturers coming and going, as as, as motorsport tells us, then people go. But this kind of investment for this stake and the groups behind it, you know calculated groups strategic groups that suggests that this is this this sort of f1 hype it does have legs it can sustain itself for a little bit longer 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, there, and there's a really big change uh, which underpins all of this, and that is that whether you win, lose, or draw, whether you dominate the championship, you finish fourth, or you finish eighth, you're in a championship where there are strong commercial agreements, where there are central revenues that are now more equitably distributed in terms of the prize money, so that, you know, as I've said on a previous podcast, you know, Gunther Steiner sitting in his mother home in Monza last year saying to me, you know, we're profitable. We've, we've all turned a corner. We, we all now have uh, profitability. So when you have profitability, whether that profitability is large or small, as long as you're profitable, you have a going concern, you have a business, you have a business that has value in it. So I think the days of the fire sales, you know, they, and, you know, I, I'm not going to describe the Williams sale as, as a, as a fire sale. The fact that you know, they did get a, get a, the kind of money most of us would only dream of, but, it was, you know, Williams was sold because they very much felt they had to. Um, they'd lost so much money that year that had been extremely tough. Um, and uh, Claire Williams and the board made the decision that actually the best solution for us is to find someone else who can take this, uh, you know, ship on and point it in a, in a new, steer in a new direction. Um, but the reality is that here we are in 2023, all Formula One teams are actually stable uh, have an attractiveness uh, about them, and and I mean you, this is why, for example, when you see Alex Albon finish seventh, as he did, you know, was such a really in the recent Grand Prix was such a recent, such an important step because it means that you know even for Williams, a team that's been through a really torrid time, you know, glimpses of an opportunity to move up a move up a place or two in the World Championship for constructors, which it, with a few points here or there. All of that just adds to the bottom line, adds to the strength of the business. And actually on the Williams thing, I will say something else. Doralton Capital must have read yesterday's press release from Alpine and just ordered some champagne because um, <laughs> you know, they 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 must be just saying, well, we now own a company that unlike Alpine has won 16 world championship titles and has, you know, formidable, formidable heritage in Formula One. So although Alpine has, of course, huge heritage as a, you know, a sort of diminutive sports car company in France, you know, Williams has had a global presence in, in Formula One since uh, 1977. So you've got a huge amount of heritage around there. So Again, you know, for Doralton, they'll be looking at that. And this is where the private equity, Doralton Capital is not a private equity company, they're a private family fund. But the, 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 the fact remains that the investment community in New York will be looking at this and saying, okay, uh, here's a play. And you mentioned, Matt, that, you know, the fact that these 
companies are not like the Saudi public investment fund, which, uh, you know, of course, has recently not only done the deal with Newcastle Football Club, but also um, essentially taken over the world of golf completely. <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, just like just incredible. And the, you know, the Saudis had apparently recently made a play for liberty, if you're to believe everything that's, that's been said. And the number that was being talked about in relation to the Saudi offered to Liberty was $20 billion. As I say, yesterday, the sport was worth $30 billion on the stock exchange. And if it's worth $30 billion on the stock exchange and somebody wants to buy it, the price is only going to go up. So when you have Greg Maffei as chairman of Formula One saying, we're worth many times, you know, we're worth a lot more than $20 million. He's actually being completely honest because if there was a bidder who suddenly came in and said, I want to take over Formula One now, what's it going to take? Liberty are probably going to be quoting a number starting with a four. It's probably going to be 40 billion you know dollars to get someone to look at formula one so we're on an upward cycle at the moment it's just getting bigger and bigger and um yeah the, the one remaining thing that needs to be fixed is for at least one of the other teams to find out a way to outsmart red bull racing and max verstappen and add some additional spectacle to uh, the world championship well shall we 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 should probably come to the on track spectacle because um we do have a feature in this month's issue the inimitable uh, andrew benson has looked at overtaking and uh, it, it's become a little bit of a hot topic in recent months been a few processional races a lot of one stop races which don't lend themselves greatly to strategic variation uh, and and a sort of captive narrative has grown up that for the overtaking has got harder in formula one and from there you have various people saying it should be made easier somehow so we set andrew to interrogate all those assumptions in his usual way so has it actually got harder is that just a perception and should it be made easier why are the people who say it should be made easier saying it should be made easier spoilers it's charles leclerc who keeps qualifying lower than he should do so he obviously he wants to it to be easier to overtake we know we you you mentioned alex albon earlier mark now in canada he did that tremendous race where he held off a train of cars that were trying to overtake him and andrew obviously was writing before the canadian grand prix but he mentioned some historically famous occasions harama 1981 where gilles villeneuve um in a terrible ferrari held off a bunch of challenging cars um that were trying to pass him for the lead um Imola 2005, Fernando Alonso holding off Michael Schumacher. Um, these these are races that we hold up as classics because there was not an overtake for the lead. And obviously, if you just made overtaking just something you could do at the touch of a button to briefly titillate the, the millions watching at home, you would sort of lose that sporting spectacle. So, yeah. So what, also another thing that we've done is the, the new regulations have closed up the field. Um, we looked at various previous seasons. Obviously, there are some outliers because Williams were terrible for a few years. Um, Haas were terrible for a few years. So that skews the statistics. If you eliminate then, even then, the, the field has closed up. That just makes it harder to overtake, doesn't it? So why should we listen to drivers who say they want overtaking to be easier? It's, it's like anything in life, isn't it? You can have 
you know, embarrassment of riches. There's a great, a really underrated line from the uh, Incredibles, which you know, for a, for a Pixar flick, is uh, is is great very film. yeah, it is it's uh, yeah, it's very um, sort of philosophical. And it says when when because you know the bad guy tries to commercialize superpowers, doesn't he? he? Says when everyone's super, no one will be. Well, you know, when everyone's overtaking that 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 um, it, the shine comes off. It's like you think of you know. Imola 05 or, or Monaco 1992 it's not the overtake it's the threat of the overtake it's when they are going wheel to wheel or or it's nip and tuck or even if there's a like a delta you know when you have it where uh, drivers are on diverging strategies it's like where's well, your crescendo to the final three laps where they might share the same few inches of time like, that's where the excitement comes from and then often it's a damp squid but by the time it gets to that point it doesn't really matter anyway that and that's a that's a problem we've got now because You've, everything's been a game of give and take but for the worst so you know so that cars can follow each other more closely with the, we've had the move to ground effects but that's then diminished the power of the slipstream because they're cutting a you know a, a reduced hole in the air well then when the FIA against driver wishes uh, are cutting DRS zones and now drivers are reporting that because you've had a year of error development you can't follow as close in the corners you're suddenly um, you know basically not as not as close coming out the corners and then you can't catch up as much on the straights and then you have which i think was a great move um but you 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 uh you revise a final chicane of um or you take out the final chicane of spain and have the sweep of fast corner well then you lose a heavy braking zone uh a, a, a section of track where mechanical grip comes to fore an attraction zone which sort of you know really differentiates the aston from the from the red bull for example so you lose it that way and it's just, and then the, the biggest thing, I think, the most egregious thing this season, which is why it's all come to a head, is forget the bias towards uh, street tracks. It's It's been the Pirelli tyres where thermal management rather than degradation has been has been the, the, the dominant factor. So that means Esteban Ocon can run until the final lap of the Azerbaijan Grand Prix on a set of hard tyres. And then, you know, in between running over photographers that that's his like only concern to com- to complete the race there's not <laughs> the offset and that's when like you know Pirelli I was interestingly um sort of Bridgestone have have lodged a tender and their value equates to something like uh I can't remember the top of my head but it's something like their value equates to four times as much as Pirelli and you think with that thank you it is in my column I knew I'd researched it before 24 billion pounds plays 4 billion yeah. pounds and so I'm not saying that it's directly related, but when you have stuff like that, and then Pirelli talk, uh, you hear people talk about Pirelli's F1 budget and that it's a, you know, a drop in the ocean, so that they can come in in 2011 with the brief to have tyres that degrade. Well, they've gone too fast. So they make them more durable. They go too far, but you know that there's not the balance. There's not the Goldilocks tyre that does that's that's perfect in the middle. You do wonder is. You know how much is the R and D budget to blame? If if they ploughed loads more cash into it, could they get that perfect tie? Because that is such a huge strategy where everyone, everyone at the minute is on a one stop. You know, Spain, Spain there was a bit more of a divergent strategy, and that made it interesting and all the better for it. But those, when you have that sort of confluence of factors, and you have, you know, I know people say that take away Red Bull, and yeah, you do have a mega championship and you do with Aston Martin Mercedes and Ferrari sometimes being good sometimes being not but the fact is that you do have Red Bull you know it's that you know if my grandma had been born with wheels she would be a bike sort of thing we do have Red Bull being dominant so you just have to accept that you have to accept they're getting screen time and and they're they're making it a bit 
of a snooze up the front, then all those factors together, you do have a bit of a damp squid. But this idea of Formula One being uber reactive and doing something to penalise Red Bull or whatever, but history time and time again, and we keep repeating the mistakes in F1, shows that when you do have a period of stability, you do have sort of a, you do have a, you know, a, a convergence that the 2021 era cars were producing a lot of dirty air, but, you know, you did have a great championship and that's how someone else put it on social media. It's like, should you actually instead see F1 as a time investment? So rather than having every race be a blockbuster, do you accept that over five years you're going to put loads of time, energy and love into this championship? And in return, do you make your peace with the fact that you hope that one of those seasons will be a blockbuster and the other four won't be quite as interesting? I thought that was, an, you know, that was a, a different take on it, but I quite liked it. It's interesting, actually. I was watching the 1982 Austrian Grand Prix on Sky Sports F1 last night, and I, I, I did take issue with some of the editing in that it seemed to go from being very early in the race to being very late in the race with um, not much of a discernible narrative <laughs> change. Um, but uh, it just brought home to me how the 1982 season was, how that era was, which was basically the turbo cars disappearing off into the distance, particularly um, Brabham because they were short fueling the cars uh, and they were just disappearing off into the distance. Whoosh, Patrese and PK, off they went. Then they'd come in for their pit stops and get a refueling job. And, and some teams were better than others at uh, pit stops. Brabham while very, very, very slow compared with a modern uh, F1 pit stop, were night and day faster than Ferrari. You you could have gone away and made a cup of tea when Patrick Tombay came in with a flapping rear tyre. But essentially, that part of the turbo era was a reliability lottery in that the cars were massively spaced out and it was just a question of who blew up first and who was there to pick up the pieces. And in Austria, what you got was all those faster cars disappearing off and you end up with the the people left picking up the pieces all of a sudden converging on one another rapidly. You have um, Keke Rosberg absolutely charging up behind Elio De Angelis over the last couple of laps and then not being able to get past him. And it was like a Mansell and Senna, Monaco, 1992 scenario which was very interesting and even uh, you know the inimitable James Hunt went well that actually turned out to be a rather good Grand Prix so this is that you're playing to uh, a point that I often talk about when I'm you know asked this question about why Formula One's become so predictable and what can we do about overtaking and making it more exciting and and I mean how many decades have we talking been talking about this uh feels feels like forever um the point you raise is exactly right. I think between 1950 and 2000, the statistics in terms of car reliability didn't actually change. Uh, it was around about 40 to 45% of the time cars just failed. And obviously that that didn't apply to the top teams all the time or necessarily the bottom teams all the time. So it was, it was an average, but it didn't really change. But thanks to the the quality of engineering and particularly thanks to the digital tools which have become available over the last 25 years formula one teams now have in in many cases bulletproof uh reliability there are exceptions when those exceptions arise we're all now completely horrified like wow they've had a powertrain failure you know they've had a you know something goes wrong people really really are surprised to see that because a driver like lewis or 
Sebastian or now Max, you know, they can realistically expect to go through an entire championship winning season without suffering a single major technical problem during a Grand Prix. They might have an issue, minor issue in practice or something. So the quality and the reliability and the durability of technology has improved so much. So you don't get, uh, oh, Max Verstappen has, you know, developed a gearbox problem with two laps to go and retired from the Grand Prix. I was, you know, again, with Mika Hakkinen, and we were talking about just before Barcelona, we were talking about that fateful day when he had led the Grand Prix until the last lap and then his, his clutch exploded. And, you know, that just doesn't seem to happen anymore. So, you know, again, Mika was talking to me about the fact that, you know, that's not really ancient history. That's 20 years ago, uh, but 20 years ago, Mika couldn't start a Grand Prix with 100% of certainty over finishing it because your reliability issues were a thing. Now, I'll have to, I have to really put my hand up here and say I I, I fundamentally haven't, you know, again, I'm, I'm showing my age here when I say this. I look at the history of Formula One now and I feel we, for all the reasons I completely understand, decided to combine cars and aircraft and embrace aerodynamics and you know and we're talking about a long time ago now we're talking over 50 years ago and we have now had five decades of relentless focus on learning how aeronautical engineering and aerodynamics can apply to formula one cars and enhancing that and refining it and again with the digital tools now available refining it to the nth degree which means that we have this technical meritocracy of cars whose performance is based on aeronautical engineering uh and it's incredibly difficult to upset that which is why we have the falseness of drs as a tool to fix that so literally you know you've got this wing that flips open to allow the car behind to go past. And when I watch those, you know, it just there's no skill involved in relative terms. I mean, if, yes, there is skill involved in getting close enough and making sure you, you you time that correctly and all those good things. You know, I know that it's not the work of a moment to perform an overtaking maneuver, even with DRS. However, it makes it a hell of a lot easier than when we didn't have the sophistication of that. And then... So this is a fundamental problem, and we're not going to reverse back up that slope. We're not going to undo 50 years of, of history and technology, technological development and convince engineers who, you know, quite frankly, not only enjoy the challenge, but also um, nowadays actually play a part in writing the rules. We're not going to convince the engineering community that the development of aeronautical and aerodynamic-based products is is no longer the future way to go for um for Formula One, so we are we are where we are. You know, we've we've created this monster, and now we're trying to figure out how to make it more exciting. Well, the, the problem is we have teams resolutely wedded to ensuring predictable outcomes. Max Verstappen doesn't go into a race trying to figure out how he can make it more exciting. Quite the opposite, he goes into every race totally focused on how he can control it. Which is why, when you see the performance of Sergio Perez, you just know that. You know, there's a gulf there in terms of ability. Um, Max is Max has got that. Is in that is in that sweet spot, and I don't. And that's not going to change anytime soon. So, we will continue having this discussion about how do we improve overtaking against a backdrop of a fundamental structure, which almost guarantees that overtaking will continue to be difficult. And I actually got a message on Twitter this morning from from a follower about. 
about um, you know the, the show. This was in relation to the discussion of the value of F1. And this follower messaged me and said, you know, how can the sport be worth so much when the races are so unutterably dull and processional and boring and, and you know, overtaking so overtaking is only made possible with DRS. And I replied to them and said, actually, we have to face the fact that it's going to be incredibly difficult to change this because of the technical meritocracy within the sport. And this is precisely why Stefano Domenicali and Liberty have had to go down the alternative route, which is to try and mix things up with the format changes. You know, let's introduce the sprint races. Let's talk about reverse grids. Let's talk about changing the format because as long as we are wedded to the technological route that we're on, and that isn't going to, honestly, that is not going to change. Um, We have to face the fact that overtaking as something that is commonplace is going to be very difficult to to achieve. And so therefore you're back to how do you mix the formats up? Um, and I mean, I almost can't believe I'm saying this because I'm, I'm really very purist about formula one and its history and how important it is to hang on to that. But you'd have to say at the moment, I'd, you'd far rather see a reverse grid and have two races in the weekend with, you know, a reverse grid in one and a normal grid in another, just, you know, quite honestly, anything to see, real change and to inject unpredictability into something that the teams are very good at avoiding i'm staggered by the heresy of reverse grids <clears throat> yeah but yes to- yeah i can totally, totally see that, the argument yeah but then I, i'm i'm kind of but then i see i see the the obsession with with um aero you know half a century of aero development uh to the nth degree i mean you only have to again going back to what we talked about in the previous podcast you know you only have to see the the underbody of the red bull on a crane in monaco and then see the underbody of a williams uh to realize that there is a gulf there is a yawning gulf in the uh, in the technical you know capability across uh, across the grid and um and we've got this meritocracy, which, you know, apparently this is what we all want. And and I absolutely, you know, uh, applaud Adrian Newey and his team for, you know, doing the the, the fantastic job that they've, they've done, uh, just as I did, you know, when Mercedes were dominating the Constructors' Championship for eight consecutive seasons. So, you know, these the teams are at the front are not the problem. The problem is the direction that the sport decided to take a very long time ago, and we are stuck with it. Final thing I'll say to Matt's point, is that then, given where we are with the aero um, and that platform, it's then about tyres. And that perhaps remains our saviour um, if, if somehow that can be gotten right. Now, I don't know enough about the topic in terms of, you know, tyre design and construction to to be able to comment on what a Bridgestone or a Pirelli needs to do in the future but you know everything matt said around that topic absolutely spot on you know it's a if you can't influence if if we're not going to fundamentally change what it is that presses the vehicle onto planet earth let's then address the four contact patches with planet earth and how those are managed and uh, the impact on performance over the course of a 300 kilometer grand prix 
Well, interestingly, and we're, we're about to run over the hour, so the algorithm's going to crucify us. So, uh, yeah, the final point I should make is um, at the Pirelli function last week I attended, uh, television's David Croft asked Pirelli's Mario Isola if perhaps it should be mandatory that there be two or more pit stops per race. Uh, and uh, Mario said, well, the, if you could do that, but then everyone would stop at the same time. So it wouldn't actually change things. And uh, TV's David Croft said, yes, but. And I was saying, oh dear, well, if there's a yes, but coming, it's probably not going to be a great idea. Um, and, and actually, it rang a little bell with me. Even if they did come in at the same time, you still have that random element that a uh, pit stop introduces of someone might drop a wheel nut or something not that wheel nuts drop off anymore but um anyway yeah we uh we have come to our end of our allocated time if you disagree with the heresy regarding reverse grids recently spouted <laughs> by mark gallagher um please <laughs> i do i do apologize and I, I i agree with the heresy so i don't know what yeah. that says about me i'm 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 mark gallagher is available on twitter if you disagree <laughs> With the, with the fundamental principle of reverse grids. Uh, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out GP Racing on your newsstands. Visit seymour.co.uk. Bash in your postcode to find your nearest supplier. Uh, you can visit gpracing.com for the latest subscription offers. And now it's time to say thank you to Mark Gallagher. Bathe yourself in holy water and seek forgiveness for your heresy. <laughs> thank you very and, much. Uh, Thank you to Mar- thank you to Matt Q and, and and good luck with all your solicitations with your solicitors over the coming weeks. Thank you kindly, Connors. I shall uh, I shall keep you posted. Unfortunately, our uh, our listeners won't be able to see, but hopefully, you'll have a nice ro- rotating cast of backgrounds over the next few weeks. So, girlfriend's parents' house this week, uh, then it'll be my parents' house, and then maybe after that, finally, I'll be uh, I have something akin to a permanent setup. It's a good thing we're not actually broadcasting this on video because then the listener would be able to see one of the cat's many litter trays behind me. So uh, be grateful for small mercies. Uh, Thank you to everyone for listening. Thanks once again to my guests and thanks to our long-suffering producer, Martin Lee, who now has the unenviable monthly task of slicing this down to size, no doubt cutting out most of my zingers, certainly all the libels, and we'll speak to you next month. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.